I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Monday, and welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Frank Holland here with me on the desk. Carl and Deirdre are off. Today, more on the street's top tech picks and where you should put your money from software to social media as the NASDAQ continues its fall this morning, down a little more than 1%. Uh, more on the street's top tech picks, yes. And uh, plus, retail investors buying the dip this year and bumping their heads on the ceiling again and again on the way down while institutions get bearish. So who's right? We're gonna discuss. And finally, productivity is the word of the hour with new comments from Salesforce's Mark Benioff. More on what he said and why it could mean more layoffs ahead at the giant and across tech later this hour, Frank. Yeah, a lot of news surrounding Salesforce in recent weeks. All right, we're gonna focus right now on the NASDAQ continuing its ride lower this morning as the volatility continues. And growth investors, they seek any signs of a Santa Claus rally into year-end. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with much more. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Frank. Yeah, not much evidence right now of uh, any turnaround in the week trend so far this year in the last couple of weeks of the year. A couple of big issues, though, I think, carrying into 2023 when it comes to growth and tech investing, which is the interplay between stocks and bonds. Uh, now, for a couple of years, I've tried to argue that rising yields are not the story about why growth stocks have been weaker uh, or stronger for that matter in 2021, but it's a part of the story. Here you see the uh, long-term treasury ETF. When this goes down, it means bond yields are going up. This is the price of the bonds against the NASDAQ 100. Pretty tight fit, as you see, although look at this divergence right here, uh, NASDAQ 100 down and a little bit of an uptrend going on in longer-term treasuries. We were at this 10-year yield level uh, back in late September. The NASDAQ 100 is 5 or 6% uh, lower than it was right then. So clearly the uh, earnings growth declines, earnings estimate declines for big tech have a lot more to do with the weakness than uh, rates at this level at this point. And maybe that's going to continue to be the case. Now, big question, broader context, growth versus value. There's been a big comeback in value over growth. It's even happening today. This is a 10-year chart of uh, the Russell 1000 value index relative to the growth index. And you see that this is looking like a really kind of encouraging chart formation, a little bit of a bottoming action, some comeback for value. But look at how much more it would have to catch up to really cut into the growth dominance that we saw of the prior decade. Doesn't mean it's going to get back up to even, but it suggests that if you think growth investors have had it rough for a year, uh, it hasn't necessarily changed the longer term complexion of that relationship. So uh, maybe brace for some more of that, guys. All right, Mike Santoli, thank you very much. All right, keeping our attention on the markets right now, our next guest argues the Fed's done much of its tightening already, and that leaves a big opportunity into the new year, especially when it comes to mega caps, software, and semis. Here to discuss, Wedbush Head of Equity Trading, Sahak Manuelian. Sahak, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me today. So you named three pretty big areas of tech. Let's just specify for a second. I want to start with chips. Where do you see the opportunity for chips, especially as we look ahead to Micron earnings on Wednesday? Yeah, so Micron earnings are Wednesday. We like, um, you know, these chips have been beaten up pretty hard. Certainly the most sensitive area uh, of technology to the economy. The SOX index is down some, some 30, 33% year to date whereas the uh, S&P tech index is down maybe 25%. So Micron reduced DRAM and NAND wafer starts um, not too long ago to right-size supply. We think the deterioration in, in uh, memory conditions is pretty well understood by the street, and more important to investors is, is when a cyclical bottom is established. Uh, our, our take is the industry is probably closer to a trough 
than than to peak, and we think Micron has improved its positioning to that end. And and the downside here somewhat limited um, book value right around the mid forties. Right. Uh, we like the stock here going into the print. We feel like risk-reward, it starts to look much more compelling at these levels. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about that memory part of the chip sector. Um, obviously, a lot of weakness. We've seen a lot of push or pull forward of PC sales, which have kind of hampered uh, you know, the outlook as far as 2023. But we're all seeing a big ramp up when it comes to electric vehicles. Things have slowed down a bit due to declining gas prices. But isn't just this big macro trend of more and more electric vehicles we're seeing double-digit growth in France, double-digit growth in Germany. Here in the U.S., a slower story, but isn't that really a very bullish sign for memory chips? Yeah, I think that'll, uh, into next year, I think that starts to play into the uh, bullish sign. I think currently the, the, the macro backdrop is just overpowering what company fundamentals are. I think that the Fed and, and the inverted yield curve, and I think rates um, where they are now, has, has just taken precedent. And I think the tech sector has gotten so beat up this year. Um, looking into 2023, we feel like we can get a little bit more uh, bulled up in, in, in technology stocks. We think semis, well, one way to play that. Within the semis, we like Micron. Yeah, but, but when, Sahag, looking more broadly, back up with me for a bit here. Um, we're just mentioning Salesforce's Mark Benioff a couple of days ago was saying, all those new hires we made, they're not as productive as we'd like. Let's get some ideas about what's wrong with productivity. To me, it echoes what we also heard uh, from uh, Google Alphabet's CEO, Sundar Pichai, uh, last year saying productivity, we need 20% better productivity. That sounds to me like they're perhaps looking for excuses to have to cut in the beginning of 23. And and I'm not sure the, the sort of... Um, I don't know, pessimism that that implies is priced into the market. You think it is? Look, the, the, the job cuts, you know, we've seen that certainly intensify um, going into year end. We think next year that's not going to wane. And I think that for the time being, the job cuts and the softening labor conditions will be viewed as uh, near-term bullishness for tech and the tech complex. The, the entire tech complex uh, hired so aggressively since the onset of the pandemic, we're seeing the opposite effects of that today. And for the time being, bad news seemingly is good news. And going into next year, I, I think we see more of that. So Zalk, I wanna look at some good news that was just flat out good news. Last week, Oracle and Adobe reported earnings. You're pretty bullish on those stocks. What did you see in those reports that makes you bullish in them for them going forward? Was it the AAR? Was it some other demand number? Or was it the commentary on the calls? Commentary incrementally getting better. ARR numbers have been improving. Taking a look at, you know, other names, you know, within our complex that we cover within big tech, Microsoft comes to the forefront. Um, being able to buy a company, a big tech company like Microsoft, um, Price earnings relative to growth, we think, makes a lot of sense here. Um, the Azure guy did disappoint investors most recently. This has been taken down. We think the cloud and, and underlying PC market have been so weak coming out of uh, the pandemic. A lot of this is priced. We think the cloud and underlying Office 365 and Windows ecosystem will comprise a bigger um, price of the company going forward. And, and this should you know spur growth 
and margins. Um, and, and we like it into, you know, the next calendar year. And we think that um, a lot of the valuations have come in such that many of these make sense and risk reward starts to look much more compelling. And given where we've come from the beginning of this year, we just don't want to stay too negative in the tech complex All at right, this so, point. So Hawk Moalina Wedbush, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, Tesla shares opened higher this morning before selling off. That was on hope CEO Elon Musk is going to step down as head of Twitter following a weekend policy snafu and a CEO recall poll that he called on himself with more than 17 million of the platform's users. He lost that poll. Steve Kovac joins us with the latest. Steve, yeah, this is John, weird. This is incredibly weird. And no word yet, John, if Musk is going to make good on his word and step down as CEO of Twitter. But the results of his poll were clear. 17.5 million votes with more than 57% saying, yes, Musk should step down as CEO of Twitter. So why is he doing this? Well, he's already said he doesn't plan to run Twitter forever. Just last month, Musk testified in a hearing in a shareholder's lawsuit challenging his compensation at Tesla and said he plans to find someone else to run the company in the longer term. Now, much of the questioning in that case focused on Musk's time spent at Twitter instead of Tesla. Meanwhile, Tesla shares are down about 30% since Musk took control of Twitter and over 50% since making his offer to buy the company in the spring. And just last week, he sold another $3.5 billion worth of shares that was presumably to fund Twitter operations as advertisers reportedly reduce or pool spending. And it comes after saying he wouldn't sell any more shares of Tesla. He's been saying that since April. The poll also caps a bunch of drama over the last few days, with Musk arbitrarily changing Twitter's rules to suspend some journalists' accounts, only to reinstate them again. Over the weekend, he also changed the policy to suspend users who share links to rival social media platforms, only to cancel the rules several hours later after a bunch of blowback. Now, as far as who would run Twitter if Musk steps down, he said this weekend, no successor as of yet. But former T-Mobile CEO John Ledger last month did offer to take the job. Must shut him down, though, on Twitter, of course. Uh, Tesla shares are down a bit now, but they were up over 4% pre-market this morning when Musk's Twitter poll closed, guys. Now, Snoop Dogg has also <laughs> offered to take over. I don't believe Musk has said no to Snoop. Yeah, I think Ledger has a better track record as a CEO than uh, But does he? Snoop, yes. Oh, yeah, you got, you got mean, the Sprint deal done. Snoop's got, like, an alcohol brand. I'm sure he has some type <laughs> he of He can multitask. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. can ride down the street, smoking endo, and sipping on There you. we go. <laughs> and, which, Elon, also multitasking, CEO of multiple companies. But uh, I guess part of what this questions though tesla hit a new 52 week low just today yeah right this this morning the more that goes down the more pressure there is arguably on him uh to to get twitter right 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 because that's his source of funds to fix that and if he's got to sell more tesla to fix twitter that's not, it's still his responsibility even if he's not ceo can he really step away yeah and also keep in mind like this is so much of his wealth is tied up in, in Tesla, right? So that becomes his piggy bank as he makes all these weird actions, arbitrarily changing the rules, scaring off advertisers so they pause or just leave the platform completely. He has to keep going back to that piggy bank and selling. Or as we heard last week, reportedly, he's trying to find more investors to invest in the company at the same share price he bought it for, which we all know is overly inflated anyway. Yeah, a lot of hand-wringing about what this means for Tesla. I think two things we're not thinking about. Number one, 
Tesla stock's also been impacted. A lot more competition in the EV space. A lot of different players coming in. And then also starting the new year, the Model Y and the Model 3, they're going to both be eligible for that tax credit and the Inflation Reduction Act. Certainly a tailwind for the stock. So a lot of this might be much ado about nothing if those Tesla sales and deliveries spike back up again. I'll borrow an idea from our Phil Lobo, though. He says that, you know, not necessarily that these other EV challengers are a huge threat to Tesla just yet. Tesla has the manufacturing capacity uh, that these guys just don't have yet. So Tesla does have an advantage there, at least, at least according to our friend Phil. So, well, the, the hits just keep coming. Yes. He's and keeping it interesting. And who knows what's going to happen? He could just change his mind, you know, right now. He so, can. yeah. But as of right now, if he holds by his word, he will not be CEO much longer. Well, <laughs> Uh, it's the end of the year. We'll see. <laughs> Come back. Thank Thanks. you. And uh, forget Twitter and bet on Meta, according to our next guest. We'll have more on the other social media names you should be watching here. Tech Check is just getting started. Don't go away. spend a little more time on the drama in the social media world and the stock implications. Our next guest sees the turmoil at Twitter as, quote, a golden opportunity for Mark Zuckerberg to deprioritize his metaverse dreams and become investors' social media darling once again. That said, Meta itself might have other ideas, with the company's chief technology officer announcing this morning plans to continue devoting about 20% of overall costs and expenses to the Reality Labs division in 2023. Joining us now, Margins Editor Ranjan Roy. Ranjan, I mean, I, for the past few trading days, people have been hoping, expecting for some reason that Mark Zuckerberg is going to relent and spend less on the metaverse than he's promised us that he's going to spend. Why do you think he's going to do that? Okay, I still think 2023 is the year that Mark Zuckerberg will deprioritize his metaverse dreams because I don't think we're going to get any major admission of failure or there's going to be a major contraction in spending. And remember, in 2022, Meta's Reality Labs is on track to lose $13 billion. And yes, today, Andrew Bosworth, their CTO, posted how it will still have spending around 18 to 20%. But I think this is a huge tell because up until this point, there's never been a cap placed on the percentage of spending. It was still basically a blank check. This is the first time you are seeing some kind of admission that there is a limit to how much they will spend. But, Another thing. But but oh, sorry. didn't they say we're going to spend before they said we're going to spend about the same amount in 23 as we spent before. And here they are just reiterating that again. Now, I know Facebook has this history of sandbagging and then being able to pull back on expenses when they really have to. But isn't there the chance that the only thing that really gets them to do that is a huge economic deterioration, which ends up taking the stock price down further anyway? No, no, I think you need to read into what Boz said when he said futuristic technologies, because another big part of that is actually around AI content discovery, AI-driven content discovery, the same way a TikTok will recommend accounts that you don't necessarily follow. This is core to their core business, and this is something that does fall under, from the research side, the futuristic technologies and reality labs. And I think that is an admission that Facebook is still ready to focus on the core technologies, because 
because again, Elon Musk has opened the door and I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is going to not take the opportunity because no longer is the Facebook empire, the bad guys on the front page. Now, suddenly every advertiser who's, who's had any concern around content moderation, they see it can be a lot worse. And there is still <laughs> meta that has a very professionally run ad organization. And I think that they are making the moves that they need to, to actually stabilize themselves into 2023. I do agree. Okay. All Mark Zuckerberg has to utter are the words refocus on the core. Just signal that, utter that a little bit, and investors will come rushing back. Well, I mean, you're saying that's all he has to do, but he hasn't done it quite yet, Ranj. And I want to switch gears from growing costs to growing revenues. I want to talk about Instagram and Reels. A lot of promise there when it comes to potentially competing with TikTok. But I'm looking at your notes. You think a TikTok spinoff would be a tailwind for Meta? And I'm just really confused. I mean, in the past, when we saw TikTok possibly spun off. We saw companies like Oracle and Walmart being very interested in possibly acquiring or partnering there. Wouldn't that just increase competition, have very competent, big-name players like that entering the same space as uh, Facebook, or excuse me, Meta with Reels? Um, okay, so TikTok potentially being spun off, I think this is very important because it cannot simply be spun out without any major significant hampering to the business and the product. Remember, every bit of reporting that's come out tells us that TikTok is you know, inextricably linked to the parent company ByteDance. That's at the algorithmic level. That's at the infrastructural level. Even if a Disney or Oracle or whatever buyer comes in, you're not going to just simply spin out the company. And ByteDance itself, let's not forget, is in a bit of a precarious situation. They're kind of the poster child for, you know, big hedge fund funded private company. They were at a $400 billion valuation yeah. and that's investors can't even get out at $240 billion. So it's not going to be a simple thing. And right. we've seen how strong Reels is as a product already. Okay. So um, also I got to mention TikTok burned through a lot of cash. So any big company buying that is going to be uh buying something that burns up profits. And in this market, maybe that's not so popular. But, but what about Snap? Snap is not doing great. It's at about uh, $8.20 a share, $8.20 a share right, right here. Is all of this turmoil good for Snap, given its relative safety argument that Evan Spiegel's been making for years? Yeah, I think Snap is incredibly well positioned because Snap also owns the same demographic as TikTok, Gen Z. Snap's users, 18 to 25, as the majority, also a very lucrative target audience for advertisers and the ones who are defining the future of how products are used. So yeah, I think Snap is very well positioned. I think Meta is very well positioned. I think 2023, I, I will predict there will be significant action taken because you just cannot have an issue. It's the only by partisan issue that TikTok having some major change in the way it operates in the United States is going to happen. And I agree, Snap and Meta are going to be the two main benefactors. All right, Ranjan, thank you. Ranjan Roy. Sticking with social media and digital advertising, our next guest picking Meta as one of his favorite names heading into 2023 alongside another mega cap, Amazon. Joining us now, the analyst behind that call, City Managing Director, Ron Josie. Ron, is this a game of chicken with Mark Zuckerberg betting that he's going to swerve and spend less on the metaverse? Is the stock tied up in that or no? You know, um, the answer is the stock's tied up in a lot of different things. Uh, John, I think the first thing that we're looking for, while we do think that advertising does come back because Meta is doing a better job of 
getting, uh, call it, used to working under the new IDFA sort of pretenses. But more than anything, it's about that operating income. And John, if they can get that operating income to stabilize here, at least on a sequential basis from a margin perspective, then I think at least we have a baseline and then we can start talking about some of the good things that are happening within reels, within monetization improvement and things along those lines. So it, it all depends is the answer. But, um, you know, uh, frankly, it's uh, let, let's let's make sure we can get the profitability and the cost more in line with where things are from a macro level today, because it's not it's not easy. The online advertising environment is certainly not. Uh, not as healthy as it was historically. Hey, Ron, looking at your top picks for the internet right now, Amazon's uh, right there for e-commerce. So you're looking at obviously retail spending is a big part of the Amazon story, and then the other part is its cloud business. What's your forecast for the cloud business? We're hearing more and more of these cloud companies saying that their customers want one vendor to handle multiple things. They don't want to shop around anymore. They want, whether it's an Oracle, an Amazon, a Microsoft, they want more and more of them to do one thing. Is Amazon able to kind of sweep up all these different services that people are looking for uh, when it comes to cloud-based apps and actually benefit from some of this IT slowdown? It's a really good question. I mean, what we saw during the pandemic was we saw an acceleration from, call it a mix shift from offline or, or on-premise hardware to the cloud. And what we're hearing now today is there is a little bit of a discerning sort of look at all the spend that's going on in the cloud. And, and so, look, spend is slowing down, more of the emerging, call it, testing-type spend within the cloud. But there's no doubt that we're seeing that massive tailwind overall. Okay, so you asked a question about where we are with our projections. We're looking for about 20% growth next year in AWS overall. Um, we do think that- but Is that disappointing? Uh, is 20% good enough for all the investors out there? Well, that, that's the question, right? What are you paying for 20% growth? And frankly, this is something that came out out of 3Q earnings. The markets clearly talked to us about what they think about it today, right, with the stock being down as much as it is as it is post-earnings. However, our view here is you do get a mix shift more to cloud. I think AWS, you saw this with the reInvent conference about a, a few weeks ago. You're still seeing massive innovation here. And although there are some studies out there that suggest that most organizations do operate a multi-cloud platform. In our view, AWS definitely takes advantage of their used to be and call it still is seven, five, seven year head start in the space. So yeah. I, I do multi-cloud multi also often means uh, around 80% AWS and 20% something else. But at the same time, from the likes of MongoDB this earnings season, we've seen this strength in best of breed. Uh, we've even seen strength in Oracle when it comes to uh, follow-on effects from public cloud, which you might not expect because when we talk about hyperscalers, megascale, we're usually talking about three other names that aren't Oracle. So is there another side to this where perhaps the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, Google Alphabet don't benefit disproportionately in this environment compared to some of the application powers like your uh, Adobe's, uh, Oracle's, even smaller names like MongoDB? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it's a competitive space, right? And you saw that just, uh, was it a few weeks ago with the Pentagon or the DOD awarding the JWCC, which is the incarnation of, of Jedi. And so when it comes to AWS specifically, we still think that they have the most products available across the broader spectrum of industries that they support. And that five to seven year head start, John, I, I can't underscore enough how important that is in our view in terms of AWS solidifying their share. That doesn't mean it's not competitive. That doesn't mean that the experimental budgets within technology might be pulled back a little bit. But what it does mean in our view is that 
Um, AWS has many more different products to offer. That to, while we're in a multi-cloud uh, approach, that 80% stays with on 80% and grows um, over time with budgets. And so this is a time really, I mean, it's sort of fascinating. We, we saw what happened with the pandemic in a, essentially a V shape format yeah. um, in terms of demand declining. And maybe we don't see a V this time around, but I do think you see some sort of continue on the trend of off of uh, just newer technologies and adoption over time. Right. Right now, people are hoping for a W, something like that. Ron <laughs> Josie, thank you. Yeah, yeah John. Thank so you, guys. One other thing to watch, talking about Oracle really quick, their yeah. on-premise revenues beat estimates very strongly by about $200 million. So that cloud transition story, as we see in IT spending slowdown, may not be that direct line that people thought it was. But they've gotten the benefit from their integrated strategy, right? Being able to work on the hardware that runs Oracle better, right. that's helped them with the margins as well. And that's part of their cloud play, which is interesting. We talk about uh, AWS and their custom chip play. Oracle's got something similar. Yeah, very similar, very similar. But when we're talking about that cloud transition, IT spending slowdown, recession concerns, a lot of companies may say, hey, let me keep my on-premise business the way it is. And going forward, I'll look at spending money in that cloud transition, something to watch. Yeah. All right, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff sounding the alarm when it comes to productivity and CNBC. We got the whole scoop on this one. More on what he said and what tribal culture it has to do with it. We're going to explain that after the break. Do not go anywhere. Tessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. Now, home builder sentiment is down for the 12th straight month as higher mortgage rates and a weaker economy hit the housing market. The monthly index from the National Association of Home Builders is now at 31. That's the lowest reading in more than 10 years. The U.S. government has made a roughly $4 billion windfall on sales of crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve since March. The government sold 180 million barrels at an average of $96.25 per barrel, compared to the current price in the $75 range. Shares of Mesa Air Group are up more than 10% today. Mesa's ending its contract with American Airlines, where it had been operating the carrier's American Eagle Regional Service, and now it's moving its jets to United Airlines, where they'll fly under United's regional brand, United Express. And Avatar The Way of Water led the weekend movie box office with $134 million in domestic ticket sales. That was below the industry expectations. Nevertheless, it had the second highest global opening of this year, trailing only Marvel's Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. You know, Frank, I saw it, but it was at a theater with it on every half hour a different screen. So they were just going full force Avatar. Wait, you had to give your review. If you saw it, what did you think? Uh, it was beautiful and long and maybe not appropriate for the two nine-year-old children I brought with me. <laughs> All right, parental, uh, what is it, parental <laughs> advisory suggests? Yes, that it's called. yes, exactly. Well, Contessa Brewer, thank you for that movie review and the news update. <laughs> All right, turning our attention back to the world of software, Salesforce's Mark Benioff not missing any words when it comes to new hires and productivity. CNBC revealing over the weekend new internal Slack messages from the currently co-CEO, eventually the only CEO, to his employees asking, quote, how do we increase the productivity of our employees at Salesforce? New employees are especially facing much lower productivity. Is this a reflection of our office policy? Are we not building tribal knowledge with new employees without an office culture? Asking for a friend, a little sarcasm there. Some wondering if it's an indicator of more layoffs ahead. Um, they cut hundreds of jobs last month, but, that's the, but then said it all comes after the company grew headcount 
by more than 30% last year. So sign of something to come, John? Well, I mean, here's the translation. He's saying we're not getting as much revenue as I expected after spending on this headcount. What are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. Either all of a sudden those people are going to start bringing in a whole lot more sales in a down economy, doubtful, right. or they're going to cut if they're going to maintain their profit margin. I mean, isn't that how it works? I mean, generally, that is how it works. You know, I do have the benefit. I spoke to the chief marketing officer. They had an event in New York City a couple weeks ago. She said they're looking to do more in-person events and, and try to boost sales that way. I don't know if headcount's going to be the way to also do more events. So that's the question. It sounds like they're trying to get their sales team out there and a bit more active. But maybe there is something to say about having people back in the office. I mean, how quickly do those sales events end up in a boost to sales? Do you have to cut well, we, we see the direction that's going in anyway. Uh, also, along these lines with what's happening with enterprise software, I spoke with John Thompson, who is the lead independent director at Microsoft on Friday in a Fort Knox update. I uh, was speaking to him and Rubrik CEO Bipul Sinha, who was announcing that Thompson has also become lead independent director at that late stage startup. Rubrik last valued at $14 billion just seven months ago. I asked Thompson about the landscape for enterprise software in 2023 and what that means also for the IPO market. It's likely that the first half of 23 is going to be more tumultuous than we've seen in a while. I mean, this this feels like circa 19, 2008, if you will, uh, when we were going into what is a slump. The question becomes, how far down does the market go? Is it pre-COVID or post-COVID? Clearly, the number one issue for companies at the early stage is cash burn. And how are they going to manage cash burn during a period of time when, quite frankly, valuations may be depressed if not you know pushed further down and so i think having companies in our portfolio that literally have 24 months or more of cash on their balance sheet such that they can weather this storm becomes critically important he said he said two years of cash on the balance sheet so connecting that to salesforce cash preservation productivity important, right. whether you're as big as Salesforce or as small as the startups in Lightspeed's portfolio. Well, one thing I, I want to note is that I cover a lot of cloud stocks, obviously, in cybersecurity. More and more of them are highlighting their free cash flow numbers, trying to send a message to investors, hey, we have the money on our books to survive a downturn, and maybe our valuations are down. Maybe we have some other stories that may make you think negatively. However, we got the cash on hand. Yep. They can hold their breath longer. Maybe they can even acquire. Yeah. All right, turning our attention now to crypto, something that we can't hold our breath on, something we got to pay attention to right now. Former FTX head Sam Bankman-Fried is throwing in the towel when it comes to extradition. Our Kate Rooney joins us with the very latest on this twisting and turning story, Kate. That's what I'm hearing, Frank. So a source familiar with the matter tells me that the former FTX CEO plans to surrender himself to U.S. extradition. He arrived at a Bahamian court in the last hour. There's no cameras in there, but NBC News telling us that they're in a brief recess right now, Bankman-Fried is there in a suit, but they say he still looks disheveled. He was seen with his head in his hands, his knees shaking. And as for his legal strategy, guys, this marks a pretty quick pivot. Just last week, his lawyer said they planned to fight extradition to the states. He's been in the Fox Hill Correctional Facility in Nassau since his first court appearance last week. And this change of heart could be a result of some of the conditions of that jail. A human rights report from last year details a lack of beds, some overcrowding and a variety of sanitation issues, to put it lightly. He was uh, denied bail there. And some legal experts are telling me that that there may be a better chance of him getting bail in the U.S., which is what he's fighting for. This change could also speed up the pace of a trial. A source telling NBC News that subject to Bahamian officials' approval, Bankman-Fried 
plans to go straight to the airport after the hearing today. Last week, Bankman-Fried was indicted in a New York federal court on eight criminal counts and faces civil suits from the SEC and CFTC. Attorneys for Bankman-Fried declined to comment. Elsewhere in crypto, though, guys, Binance U.S. this morning agreeing to buy the assets of Voyager. If that company sounds familiar, FTX was supposed to bail it out, among other companies. Binance's de facto U.S. subsidiary will pay just over a billion dollars in that deal, guys. Uh, heading straight into 2023, the uh, crypto story keeps on giving. Kate, thank you. Now, is it time to take a second look at take two? Ha <laughs> Cowan says yes. We're going to discuss. And later this hour, that'll be with the analyst behind the call why he's betting big on the name into the new year. Don't go away. Despite a rocky year for markets, individual investors have been piling in, uh, flooding mutual funds and ETFs with more than $100 billion over the past 12 months. That's the third biggest inflow year since 2000. Institutions, meanwhile, heading in a different direction with their cash positions at hedge funds hitting their highest levels since early 2020. So should retail investors cash in or cash out? Joining us now, Wall Street Journal Live Markets coverage lead writer and CNBC contributor, Gunjan Banerjee. Uh, Gunjan, <laughs> it might seem like now is actually a better time to buy in than the other times investors have been buying the dips, but I guess we've heard that before, too. We certainly have, and it's been so fascinating to see because it looks like the individual investors this year have really had diamond hands when it comes to holding on to stocks while institutional investors have been bailing. And it's it's especially interesting given that it's one of the worst years for buying the dip since the 1970s, with the S&P 500 falling an average of 0.7% the week after a 1% decline. I think this really highlights what an unusual recovery it's been since the recession of 2020, where American households are a lot healthier than a lot of people expected. And that's given a lot of people extra firepower to invest in the markets, given that unemployment is low, wages have been ticking, ticking higher. Right. And that's giving people, you know, some extra ammunition to step into the markets. Gunjan, tell me what you think of this. My conclusion from, from this and some of your reporting is that the Reddit revolution, at least the first round of it, failed, right? Look at what happened with meme stocks. Look at what happened with crypto. Look at how retail investors have been trading, buying the dips this year. To me, the, the mark of whether it was successful was going to be, can the individual investor community come up with the right kind of research that makes them smarter and not just short-term minded? That doesn't seem to have happened. You know, I, I've actually been really, really surprised by what a long-term view a lot of these investors are taking. And, you know, I think this is very different from the Reddit activity, where I've been hearing several things from investors. One, a lot of them aren't on Reddit, on Wall Street bets anymore. And a lot of these investors that are turning to ETFs, mutual funds this year, right, they're looking at broader indexes rather than meme stocks. Some of those investors have shifted their strategies. And, and what I was hearing from investors while reporting for this piece is they were saying, look at how the stock market rebounded in 2020 um, after the financial crisis. Even after the dot-com bubble, they were saying the stock market always bounced back. Maybe this time I'm buying low. So, Gunjan, one question. Uh, I go on Reddit quite a bit. I cover meme stocks here at CNBC. So 
One thing I've noticed is that people are putting a lot more research onto those Reddit boards. There's a lot more people doing, you know, macro takes on things and really dissecting stocks. But on the other hand, you're mentioning people have diamond hands, but there just haven't been the gains. Um, it's hard to not have diamond hands when there's no gains. You're going to sell into a loss. Is that also a big factor? I, I do think that's part of it. And look, a lot of these investors that are that are putting money into the market, let's not forget that they have automated 401k investments. They have these automatic monthly contributions and they're just saying, I'm not changing that. And of course, a lot of people don't want to sell at a loss. Um, but I do think it's important to note that people are taking more of a long-term view. And, and the question is, how much longer does this sell-off last? And what does it mean that investors have had diamond hands so far? What does it mean for the market if they do eventually bail? Because they have been a key source of support for this market during the worst year for the S&P 500 since 2008. Yeah, Gunjan, right. yeah. thank you. Thank All right. you. Still to come here on Tech Check, more on Microsoft as Morgan Stanley names it a top pick this morning. But first, check out the top gainers on the NASDAQ 100 Tech Check back in two minutes. All right, let's dive into another top pick this hour. Cowan calling Take Two. Their best idea in gaming for 2023 as they look for more details on the release of the highly anticipated release of Grand Theft Auto 6 and forecast better growth across mobile gaming in the next year. With us now, Cowan Managing Director Doug Krutz. He joins us with an outperform rating on the the stock price target of 147. Doug, great to have you here. Thank you. So how much of the Take-Two story is really levered to Grand Theft Auto, whether it be 6 or they're bringing back the original trilogy or any other iterations? Well, GTA 6 is going to be very important for them. Uh, We expect it to launch in calendar 2024. Uh, Obviously, the game has always sold uh, millions of units. The the GTA 5 has sold over, certainly over 150 million to date. I think it might even be more than that. Uh, But but as importantly, um, GTA Online has been a a big money earner for them for since GTA 5 came out nine years ago. Does about a half a billion a year in revenue. Uh, we think that the GTA 6 launch could take that up to a new level. Um, certainly, there's been a lot of innovation in online service gaming since GTA 5 came out. And when you look at other games like FIFA and Call of Duty, those are both north of a billion dollars a year in, in live service revenue. We think GTA could do the same. Yeah, you're hitting on one of my questions. Um, FIFA, obviously, we just had the World Cup final yesterday. A lot of excitement around soccer right now. And in general, as we see big trends in sports, I would think that there's more interest in sports games. How does that impact the Take-Two story, but the broader gaming story as well? Yeah, they have the premier uh, NBA franchise, NBA 2K. Uh, It it has done very well for a long time. We expect it to continue to do well. Uh, They also have a a mobile football manager game, which which is not huge for them, but it has been a nice performer, and we think that that could benefit from FIFA a bit. Uh, Doug, the digital ads market has been rough. So I wonder what that means for King and Zynga, which were acquired by Take-Two and Activision Blizzard. Like in the last quarter, it seemed like one did better than the other. Are they both headed for tougher times in 23? Or does that mobile gaming business, casual gaming business stabilize? Yeah, I think... If you're talking about the advertising side, you know, there's, there's two, sort of two prongs to what's going on. One is that there's just been a general ad slowdown because of the economy and that's affecting everybody. 
secondly, I think on digital specifically, you've seen social networks uh, lose a lot of share because of Apple's uh, IDFA changes. Um, that it probably on net has been good for the mobile gaming ad networks uh, right. because people have gone away from Facebook and they've had to look for other ways to advertise. And I think that mobile games have benefited from that. But is that better uh, for the, the gaming companies or is it better for, say, the app lovins uh, and the uh, unities of the world? Well, it, it's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, I think it's good for their advertising business, just full stop. But they also used Facebook to advertise, to attract new users to their games, to, to generate revenue through in-app purchases. And that, that part of the business has been sort of undergoing a realignment over the last 12, 15, 18 months. I think we're out the back end of it now, but it has contributed to some of the sluggishness in the sector that we think will uh, revert and go back to growth in 2023. So, Doug, one last question. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people ask you about this when it comes to the long-term view on these video game stocks. The metaverse, is that a threat to a take-two? Is that a threat to some of these other names? And the fact that we see a company like Facebook spending 20%, you know, to try to build into the metaverse, how big of a long-term risk is that to a take-two and some of these other video game makers? Yeah, so I would actually say if there's any platform out there that's closest in sort of philosophy and experience to what you know the, the metaverse if we talk about ready player one is it's actually grand theft auto online you can go in there and you can be anyone and you can do anything and there isn't somebody moderating your content for the most part uh it's a very rich experience which is why it's so popular and i think you know anybody who wants to build a metaverse no, no matter how well they do on the tech side if it isn't populated with great content, no one's going to want to show up. And so from that perspective, even if somebody else does come along with a technology for the metaverse that's really great, I believe that Take-Two's content is going to be in demand there. The, 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 the gaming companies have always been somewhat platform agnostic because their content is valuable wherever you send it. Yeah, good point there. Uh, Doug, thank you very much. We appreciate the insight. Thank you. You want more tech check this holiday season? Of course, it's like cowbell. You always want more. You can follow and subscribe to our podcast then. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. And don't fear the reaper. We're back in a moment. Back. Let's get a check on the markets. The major indices all lower. The Dow just by a quarter of a percent. The S&P down a little bit more than a half percent. The Nasdaq faring worst of all, one and a quarter. Three names in particular to mention there. Robinhood, Coinbase, Affirm, all those consumer-leaning, retail investor-leading names. Those are all down, gosh, more than five percent. Affirm most of all down about seven, Frank. Yeah, a lot of pressure on the market today. All right, one more thing before we go. Uber drivers are striking for 24 hours in New York City today and calling on all passengers to boycott the ride service as well. The protest is coming on the heels of a judge blocking wage increases for drivers after the New York Taxi Workers Alliance voted earlier this year to increase both fares and wages for drivers in the city. And Uber took legal action to block the scheduled 11 percent pay raise, saying, quote, drivers do critical work and deserve to be paid fairly, but rates should be calculated in a way that is transparent, consistent and predictable. Does this just mean everybody's going to use Lyft? 
<laughs> I think there's a good chance. I mean, it's the same drivers too, right? So for the most, you know, if you get in most of them, they have both stickers in there. Right. A lot of times they're switching back and forth through apps. I think the real question is, where is the limit on paying for an Uber? Uber prices have jumped dramatically. There's the reliability, I have to say, has declined at about the same level. So where's the point where we all just say, hey, maybe I jump back into that cab or I just drive myself. You and I don't just jump into cabs, Frank. You know, <laughs> hailing a cab is not, that was part of the whole, right? That, I mean, hypothetically, yes. No, I'm not talking hypothetical. Well, let's, let's go back to a check on the market since people might not understand that one. It's, it's easier to hail it on the app sometimes, <laughs> but maybe the cab drivers are feeling better now with the threat of Uber and Lyft. Uh, lower as we head to the half, and the half starts now. Thanks for being with me, Frank. Thank you, John. With Brian Sullivan. Oh, left me hanging. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.